Where can you find everything you want to buy? Amazon. What about two-day shipping no matter where I live? Amazon. What about groceries? Yes, Amazon has it. Go to d2rpn.com and click the Amazon banner. Fucking love it. Hey, it's Ryan. And it's Dave. If you guys like the skits on the Rock Vegas podcast, check out the Rock Vegas Puppet Show on YouTube. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Rock Vegas Puppet Show. And also on Twitter at Rock Vegas Puppet. Yeah, new episodes come every Sunday. Make sure you subscribe. Because no one knows this story the way I know it. It takes place the night of June 12, 1994, and it concerns the murders of my ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her young friend, Ronald Goldman. Forget everything you think you know about that night, because I know the facts better than anyone. The story you know or think you know, that's not the story. Not even close. This is one story the whole world got wrong. Tonight, O.J. Simpson is out of jail and a free man. But did he get away with murder? Twelve years ago, a shocking interview with publisher Judith Regan. You reached under the seat for... Um, a knife. For the first time ever, in O.J.'s own words. I remember thinking, well, whatever's going on over there has got to stop. Details about the bloody crime scene that seemed like only a killer would know. You write about removing a glove. Obviously, I must have because they found a glove there. And explosive revelations about an accomplice. Charlie had followed this guy in, and he brought the knife. Those tapes were lost until now. And I said, well, you think you can kick my ass? And I remember I grabbed the knife. We're finally going to hear the answer to the question that has haunted us all. What happened on the night of June 12th, 1994? I think everything was covered in blood. It was horrible. Is this his confession? You be the judge. Good evening and welcome. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and tonight, for the first time ever, you will hear O.J. Simpson put himself at the scene of the murders and tell you, in his own words, what he says might have happened that awful night. I remember I grabbed the knife. I'm standing there, and there's all kind of blood and stuff around. O.J. was acquitted of the murders, and due to the double jeopardy rule of our criminal justice system, he cannot be tried again for these crimes. And keep this in mind. This is hypothetical. 
Is it a confession to the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman? Or is this version only hypothetical, as O.J. maintains? You'll have to decide. But there is no doubt that what he says is disturbing, often chilling, and above all, unforgettable. This is one story the whole world got wrong. Thank you, sir. The Los Angeles Police Department sought and obtained a warrant for the arrest of O.J. Simpson for the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Lyle Goldman. It was a horrific crime that stunned the nation. In 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson, the beautiful ex-wife of a handsome and charismatic American sports hero, was found nearly decapitated on her front steps in L.A.'s exclusive Brentwood neighborhood. Her friend, Ron Goldman, lay nearby after bleeding to death from stab wounds. From the beginning, there was only one suspect in the murders. O.J. Oh, Simpson, NFL record-breaking legend considered by many to be one of the greatest running backs of all time. The trial became a national soap opera that delved into uncomfortable questions of celebrity, domestic violence, and most of all, race. Even though the prosecution offered overwhelming evidence to try to place O.J. at the scene of the crime, he was acquitted. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder. He's guilty. He's got to live with himself, man. What did you think of the verdict? I felt that if there's anything right with the universe, there's no way they can convict me of it. O.J. sat down with the publisher, Judith Regan, in 2006 for what would be his first and only TV interview about his relationship with Nicole and his movements on her last night alive. Regan and Simpson agreed that he would write a book about the killings that she believed would be a bestseller. It was called If I Did It. What do you think people are going to think? of this book. Uh, some people say maybe it's blood money. Well, guess what? Every book that was written about this case was blood money. After the victim's families protested that O.J. should not be allowed to profit from the murders, the book's publication was suspended, and this interview with Simpson never broadcast. Tonight, not only will we show you the never-before-seen interview, but Judith Regan herself is here to tell us what she was thinking while sitting across from O.J. Simpson that night. We'll also be joined by one of Nicole's closest friends, Eve Shakti Chen, and Christopher Darden, famed prosecutor of the criminal trial, as well as a panel of experts who can help evaluate what we are hearing from a man who many Americans believe committed these gruesome murders and who walks free today. But before we listen to O.J. talk about the night of the murders, we first need to hear about the relationship between O.J. and Nicole. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, I want to talk about the first time you met Nicole Brown. Yes. Where was it? It was right on Ordeal, uh, a place called The Daisy. It's a little breakfast place. I had actually gone there because my first wife, Marguerite, and I had just realized and decided the night before that it wasn't working with us. O.J. was married to his high school sweetheart, Marguerite Whitley. They had two children and a third on the way. At the time he met Nicole, he says his marriage was on the rocks. 
Now, we had had a trial separation. We had lived together till to June, and we realized it wasn't going to work, but she told me she was pregnant. <laughs> Jeez, what are you, you know, here we are, not, you know, how can you get pregnant, da, 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 whatever. And I was so depressed, but it was our anniversary. The next day, over the weekend, would be our anniversary, so I went into Beverly Hills. I bought her a coat for them to deliver it to her, and I ran into a friend of mine. He said, let's have breakfast, and when we walked in, this this vision turned to me and said, where do you want to sit? And I remember thinking, what a gorgeous girl, but I can't deal with this. So three days later when I came back, I went back into the Days Inn, was having lunch with the owner, and she came back in, and uh, I said, man, I would really like to take this girl out. And he called her over and introduced us and you know, said, I, oh, this is one of the good guys. And, and you were together from then on? Well, yeah, well, that, I had to take her, before we went to the party, I had to explain to her that I was married. <laughs> But I wasn't married. You know, it sounded like a line. But uh, after we talked, I think she believed me. And uh, we're together ever since. You courted her for seven years. You were together seven years before you got married? Yeah. Long courtship? Yeah, well, I really wasn't looking to get married. I, I, most guys aren't looking to get married. I had had um, uh, three kids. Uh, you know, obviously, early on in the marriage, my third daughter was born. My third child, who passed away a couple of years after that. But I wasn't looking to have kids, and then uh, after a few years, she mentioned to me that, you know, she had been helping me when my kids were with us, uh, raise my kids, and she kind of wanted her own, which was a good point to me at the time, but I was still kind of hesitant, and uh, and that caused a lot of friction with us, but for the most part, we had a terrific relationship. Um, you write about the night in 1984 with the baseball bat. You know, I don't know why this has become such a big deal. This is what bothered me with the media and these these uh, stories is is uh, I hadn't committed to um, to a, uh, a wedding date. I think I committed to, I got engaged, but then I'm going to do what most guys do, you know. You put it off. <laughs> I'm telling you, well, we'll get married maybe next summer or something. And I had come, she had come home and we were talking about it and we went out front like we often did and we was talking about what it was and I was sitting on the front of this, it was actually my car but I had bought it for her and I had a bat between my legs and as we're talking, it's, you know, it's bouncing off the tire and we're just talking and at one point I hit, it hits the uh, rim and she says, if you damage that, you're going to have to pay for it. And I go, well, if I pay for that, I guess I have to pay for this, too. And I kind of hit the front of her car, you know. So she went in the house. I don't know what she did when she went in the house. But, I mean, it's my car. I pay for everything. I said, I pay for everything around here, right? She knew he had a volatile temper. But Nicole Brown married O.J. anyway, hoping that he would mellow once they started a family. When you got married, when you finally did it after seven years, mm -hmm. were you fully committed? And Yes, and, I was. And she wanted her own children. Yeah. You're right about yeah, that. Yeah, as a matter of fact, once we got married, as I pointed out, we went on our honeymoon to get pregnant, and she got pregnant on the honeymoon. Yeah. Were you happy about that? Yeah, yeah. At that point, yes. Their first child was a girl, Sydney, and Nicole basked in motherhood. But for O.J., it meant having to share his wife's attention. So, Nicole has Sydney. Yes. What kind of a mother was she? Because you write She's about this a lot. She was almost um, 
too attentive, if, if you can be too a, a, attentive, in what you way? couldn't get her to go anywhere. You know, couldn't go out to dinner because she couldn't leave the kids. And it became a problem. I, I had worked with Judith Brown, Nicole's mother. We had, we had come up with all kinds of schemes <laughs> to try to get her to leave the kids, you know. And I, I said, we just need a weekend to go somewhere, you know. And it was just, it was almost impossible. If we went out to dinner, she'd be calling back. So she was totally involved in the kids' life. She was a terrific mom. You write in the book that Nicole changed after your son, Justin, was born. Yeah. In what way did she change? Well, she always had a thing about her weight, and um, that became uh, all consuming thing, right? right. Uh, her mother, the first advice her mother gave me, the first night we met, was, O.J., don't let her put on weight. She's miserable <laughs> if she puts on weight. Um, so that, that became a, a, a major, major thing. Um, I, I, she had heard rumors of me having a f an affair or something, which um, unfortunately was true. And that didn't help the situation at all. Um, the first time we were ever apart was when I went back to New York that fall for NFL Live, visited back and forth. I didn't know it at the time, but uh, she had kind of had a fling herself, <laughs> you know. And you also yeah. had your flings. Yeah. Eve, can I get you a tissue? Yes, please. Can we Thank grab you. a tissue, guys? What does this make you cry? Just the kids. How much she loved the kids. Did she want to be a mom? Oh, gosh, yes. And she was such a great mom. And, you know, just to think that the, the, the thing she would have wanted the most was to have seen them grow up. Grow up. Nicole was an amazing mom, and I think I'm emotional because she would have loved to have watched her kids grow up more than anything else yeah. in the world. What do you make of his demeanor in that opening part of the interview? I think he's being manipulative, and he's trying to create a story where he's okay in chasing after this 18-year-old. So, oh yeah, it was just the night before when Marguerite and I decided to split up. I doubt that's true. Uh, but he, he's constructed that in his own mind to justify the fact that he's about to pursue an 18-year-old girl and he's still a married man and his wife is pregnant. It's hard. It's hard to think that this wonderful kid could end up in a grasp of, you know, someone who just literally swept her away from from us. Rita Smith joins us. She was the former executive director of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence for more than 20 years. With your experience around domestic violence, what are the things that you saw in that interview that stuck out to you? Well, I, I think the, the thing that has always been clear to me about this particular tragedy um, is that while Simpson was a very skilled, very talented football player. He was nobody special when it came to being a batter. He was like every other batter I've ever heard about. He doesn't say it, but the bat actually was used to bash in the windshield. And by some reports, Nicole was in the car 
when he was bashing in the windshield. Subtle and not so subtle forms of violence are used to continue to keep control over their victim. So him just bouncing the bat off the tire initially was a subtle message. I am in charge. I will determine the framework for this relationship. I will decide what happens when it happens. You will not or you will die. Chris, what are your first thoughts? For him to just so cavalierly say these things as if it's nothing. I don't know why anybody's upset about this. Why is this a big deal? Uh, you know, she was almost too attentive to the kids. How can your wife be too attentive to your children? And when I read about the baseball bat incident, and uh, we talked to the officer that, that responded, um, you know, that's when I knew. That's when I knew we, we had the right guy. Why? Why did you know at that moment? Because he terrorized her. He sent her a very clear message. He has given her a, a preview of the rest of her life or perhaps even the end of it. It was never going to be easy marrying one of the most famous and sought-after men in America. Nicole wanted O.J. to regard her as an equal. By New Year's Eve 1989, they had been married for four years. To the world, they were a glamorous couple living a charmed life. Jim, if the Bills were happy with the first half, they certainly didn't show it. Very he was a celebrated sports commentator for the NFL on NBC. There's only one superstar in Rent-A-Car, Hurts. And the face of Hurts. Go, go. And there was his blossoming career as an actor in movies and on television. But behind closed doors, the Simpsons' marriage was tumultuous. Talk us through um, what happened on New Year's Eve, 1989. Hey, to me, I, and when I look back at my life, other than the deaths of my loved ones, along with Nicole, my daughter, my mom, I always said it was the most depressing and, and sad night of my life because um, we had been to a New Year's party. We're home. We were both, you know, sort of intoxicated. We were very affectionate. But somehow in the middle of this affection, she asked me about, about some earrings. That night, the Simpsons had been partying with O.J.'s friend, the pro football star Marcus Allen, and his then fiance Catherine. O.J. says it was a comment from Catherine that made Nicole suspect he was cheating. Turned out she had misunderstood uh, Marcus Allen's fiance, Catherine, that maybe I had bought Nicole some diamond earrings, but since she didn't get them, <laughs> see, I obviously bought diamond earrings from someone else. Now, I didn't know this until after that night because other than being very um, pushing me off her and going out the room and yelling and screaming, uh, she didn't, wouldn't say what it was about except something about the earrings. And I locked her out of the room and somehow she finds a key and come back in the room and I threw her out, and I really threw her out with no concern for her well-being. I mean, she got physical with me, and obviously I'm bigger. I got more physical with her, which I shouldn't have done. Historically, I just leave, and I didn't just leave. And a little later, um, um, my uh, housekeeper came and told me that the cops were outside. And the, the one thing that hurts me as much as anything in this, you know, besides being considered by some a murderer, is um, this being a batter. <laughs> Police arriving at the scene describe a bloody and terrified Nicole hiding in the bushes. She ran toward them, screaming that O.J. was going to kill her. 
Her sister took photos documenting Nicole's injuries. It was one of multiple occasions that police responded to Rockingham for a domestic disturbance. This time, O.J. would be charged with spousal abuse and sentenced to 120 hours of community service. She had bruises on her arms and her face. No. Next order, uh, which would have consistent with your wrestling person. She's, Nicole, anybody knows her, is a very physical person, a very confrontational person uh, who had gotten into her chair fights, <laughs> you know, with bouncers at clubs and stuff. Um, I made no excuses. I didn't start it, but I made no excuses uh, about my reaction. Nicole admitted that she was the one that initiated all of it, but still, I was the man. I shouldn't have reacted the way I reacted. Are no you excuses, sorry? No excuses, drink. Of course I was sorry for that. I'm responsible for what I did. You know, I got physical. I was wrong. Nicole had admitted that she initiated it. And somehow I came out of all of that because of that night as uh, the poster boy uh, of an abuser. Now, What's the prosecution used against me right. with their whole total crap about them coming to my house eight times? Cops had been there for eight times, which uh, obviously was not true. Lots to dig in there. Let's start with the prosecution, since he ends those comments with the prosecution. Yes, the police had been to his house multiple times. Uh, we located uh, police officers who had responded to DV calls at the house and hadn't even written a report. I mean, OJ created this environment where, you know, cops could just stop by and have a cup of coffee. Police officers would come to his house and, and literally, you know, party and they just sort of hang out. Uh, no police officer was really interested in arresting. O.J. Simpson for abusing Nicole. How significant was this New Year's Eve incident as you were building the case? Well, Nicole left for us a diary, notes, photographs. She documented the abuse. My sense is that she knew she was going to die. And she wanted to make sure we knew who killed her. How many instances does she document that you found? Seven or eight, as I recall. And each incident becomes more violent than the last one. We missed a half a dozen opportunities to save her life. Eve, he says, she's physical. She's confrontational. She was the one who was tussling. I've never known Nicole to be a person uh, that lost her anger. Uh, if anything, she was, as I've said before, she tended to get quiet if she got upset. She was not a confrontational person. You know, she was just battling for her life. Coming up, he never took the witness stand in his criminal trial. But tonight, for the first time... O.J. Simpson puts himself at the scene of the crime. You get into a fight, Nicole comes out. A verbal, a verbal, a verbal fight. fight. And explains in his own words what might have happened the night of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman's murder. This guy kind of got into a karate thing. And I said, well, you think you can kick my ass? And I remember I grabbed the knife. It's hard for me to describe it, I'm telling you. I don't think any two people could be... Um, murdered the way they were without everybody been covered in blood. Is this a confession? You write about removing a glove before taking the knife. You know, I had no conscious memory of doing that, but obviously I must have because they found a the glove there. You decide. 
It's all coming up tonight. Feels good. Welcome back to this extraordinary television event. Tonight you are hearing O.J. Simpson from a never-before-seen interview he did in 2006 with publisher Judith Regan. I'm responsible for what I did. I got physical. I was wrong. Nicole had admitted that she initiated it. And somehow I came out of all of that because of that night as the poster boy uh, of an abuser. The Simpson marriage was turbulent from the beginning, and things seemed to go from bad to worse. Following the violent New Year's Eve incident, life went on. There were family trips, Christmas celebrations, and an expensive renovation of their Rockingham home. But Nicole's friends and family say she had reached a breaking point after years of physical abuse and infidelity. And in January 1992, she told O.J. she wanted a separation. She didn't really want, to, want a divorce. She just wanted to separate. And I pushed the divorce. I said, no, we're going to get lawyers because uh, we'll have at least 10 months to decide if it's going to become a divorce or not. Uh, if we want to change our mind, we will. But I'm not going to go through 10 months and then decide to get a divorce and go through 10 more months. Nicole rented a four-bedroom house for herself and the children on Gretna Green Way, half a mile from the home she had shared with O.J. on Rockingham Avenue. When she asked for the separation in 1992, you mm -hmm. write in the book, I felt like I'd been kicked in the... It was the... shocking. It was absolutely shocking. Her and her mother had been to New York a few weeks before that. She had talked about how happy she was. She had gotten her body completely back. She was looking great. She was finally wearing all her fancy stuff. Well, I realized, no, it was because she had a boyfriend. <laughs> I didn't know this at the time. Really got you well, I didn't know she had a boyfriend. Of course it hurts. I didn't think it would happen. And for two or three months, I pursued her to no end uh, until I saw her with another guy. And at that point, what are you going to do? A girl's with another guy. I mean, <laughs> you'd be an idiot. OJ had hoped they would eventually reunite. But with Nicole dating other men, he didn't contest her when she filed for divorce just two months after separating. In divorce court, there was testimony about the couple's history of domestic violence. One of Nicole's therapists said, it's no secret Nicole was battered regularly all the time. How do you respond to that? Well, Nicole made it clear uh, during our divorce, under oath, I might add, that this lady was crazy. She had told me, this lady's crazy. She wants me to say these things about you. And... She wouldn't do it. That's why she wouldn't take the stand at our divorce, because they wanted her to say these things to get more money uh, in the divorce. And what people don't realize that under oath, during her deposition, when they asked if I had ever been physical with her, and this is at a time she's trying to get in my pocket. And this is at a time she's been advised, say this, and it's going to help. But she wouldn't lie. That's the great thing. She wouldn't lie about it. And uh, she told him uh, under oath that that was the one incident that I was physical with her. Was Can we make a deal? No, she wouldn't friend? lie. It's just that she wouldn't lie. Yeah, she wasn't going to lie in, in front of me and uh, on the stand. When I'm you, not being afraid. It was nothing to be afraid of. What happened next showed Nicole's fears may have been well-founded. Even as the couple waited for their divorce to be finalized, Nicole's close friends say O.J. began stalking her. One incident occurred while she was on a date with Keith Zlomswicz, the owner of Mezzaluna, a popular local restaurant. 
You write in the book about Keith and yeah. that, that night. Tell me yeah. that scene and what happened. A lot of this I didn't find out until after, right? Um, from her closest friends, uh, uh, after my trial even. You know, I didn't see these people, right? Um, um, we had once in a while seen each other. She'd come by the house. And so it wasn't like we didn't have relationships, relations in the early part of our separation. So I had run into her, which they tried to say was stalking because her and some friends were at a opening of a restaurant. I was there with like 16 people. So I'm if I'm stalking you, I'm stalking you with, with my crew. <laughs> you know, we're all there too, you know. And I saw her and I went over and spoke to her and her group. Uh, then I went out to with my group to a party. But on the way home, I'd say, I'll see if she's home because if she's still up, I don't know how late she stayed out. You know, you know maybe, you know, I can get some. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, uh, as I approached her front door, she has a window right along the walkway there. I can hear something and I can see movement. And when I look, I can obviously see she was involved in something. I didn't know who it was with or what. And I hit the door and left. When you knocked on the door? No, I just hit the door. When you hit I the wanted door, them to you... be alert, be aware that somebody's around and maybe they'd move or something. That's why I didn't even look. I just hit the door twice and left. It's funny, I realized when I got home, I, maybe for the first time since we separated, I slept like a baby. I mean, it's weird. It's really weird. I think what you do, you worry so much about something like this happening. It's what, it's, that's what had me worried. That's what I didn't want to have. That's what I couldn't picture at night and would make me wake up and I was reading all of these books about how to heal a broken heart and, and from that moment on, it was, I was fine with it. The next morning, O.J. returned to Nicole's house to confront her in the presence of her lover. Here's how he describes the conversation. But the next day we talked about it, and uh, that's when you know we had, to we had promised each other when we separated that if one of us was going to get involved with anybody, we would alert the other one. Right. She said, it was a mistake, we had been drinking, and da-da-da-da-da. And I said, well, why did you tell me that this was the nature of your relationship with this guy? Jim Clemente joins us. He's retired FBI supervisory special agent and a profiler and also a former prosecutor for New York City Law Department. It's mm -hmm. nice to, to have you with us. Okay, he starts by saying um, almost it's ridiculous. They called it stalking and then goes on to specifically describe a stalking, stalking. incident. Right. And then he goes on to say that, well, if I was stalking her, I was doing it with my crew. Exactly. Because you know how to cover your tracks. You know, there was a, happened to be a window there and I accidentally looked in and there was something going on. I didn't even look. He saw very intimate details, which he then told Nicole, I know because I saw you doing this. Doing what? Having sex, engaged in a sexual act. Judith, there's a moment where he says, I hit the door. And you say, you knocked on the door. And he said, I hit the door. And I was curious, I felt like you almost gave him an out to say knocked. I feel that he hangs himself on every word. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to sit there, ask him a question, not appear to be judgmental. And the way he describes it gives it away. Were you worried, Judith, that that if you push back, he might just get up and go? Oh, he wanted to go. He wanted to go, and he would have left, and they, he would not have opened up. And he started actually showing his true colors. Have you seen the interview? I haven't seen the interview, ever, ever. ever. No one has seen these, this interview before. Obviously, O.J. Simpson had nothing to do with this 
project. He was not part of it, editorially not part of it, was not paid to be part of it in any way, shape or form. I'm curious what you think his reaction will be when he sees this interview that he did with you, Judith, back in 2006. You're going to hate it. He's going to hate it. He's going to hate it. Nicole was actively dating, and so was O.J. He had women coming and going, including the day after catching Nicole with someone else. The next day is, uh, uh, um, uh, I call a, a friend of mine, a wine tropic girl that I had met from the past and who I'd run into, and she said, I heard you and your wife were apart. And I said, well, sort of. And I said, well, I'll call you. And I called her. <laughs> I was going to get some. Right? <laughs> Finally, after this, in any event. She came over, and we were upstairs, uh, and there was a, somebody at my housekeeper say, uh, Marcus Catherine, they're at the door. They had been trying to fix me up with this one model, and she was out of town, but they had brought her best friend over to talk to me. And when I walked downstairs, it was Paula Barbieri. Paula was shocked when the girl came down. The girl, she said, was beautiful. But her and I just hit it off. I mean, we just hit it off, and we spoke on the phone because she traveled a lot for a month. And about a month later, we really became involved. And uh... Paula Barbieri would become O.J.'s on and off girlfriend for the next two and a half years, staying with him throughout the murder trial. But he says that even as he got serious with Paula, he never stopped talking to Nicole. What happened during that time? You start dating Paula, and do you write well, about it, Nicole's reaction to your dating it, Paula? It was, it's funny, because she was dating various people, and she would call me and talk to me about it. And, you know, it, it just, it started to reach a point where it became irritating. It, be, it became a problem, because one minute she'd call me and I'd give her advice, and then then she'll call out of the blue because of something real stupid and give me a hard time, right? So I had made up my mind that... Um, I really didn't want her to call me unless it had to do with the kids. And it was kind of irritating to Paula also. To have yeah, Why are you talking to your ex-wife about our, our relationship with Paula? You just say, why are you talking to her about her boyfriends? She even got pregnant during that period of time and called me, not to ask what to do, but I think she just needed somebody to talk to. Did you feel uh, at that time that you still had love for her, affection I, for her? Of course I still had love. See, I, I had been with her uh, at that time for, what, 14, 15 years. Um, I felt she was the love of my life. Even though we were splitting, she was the love of my life. And was, was uh, I pregnant? never really thought, I never even really thought it was over. Even after we split the last time, you, I knew her and I would always have this in our lives that we would cross. You know, it just it was the nature of our relationship. You said that she got pregnant. Was she pregnant by you at the time? No. Oh, no. No. Yeah. No, whoever she was dating. I, I don't want to say the guy's yeah. name because I don't know for sure. But Did that upset you? No. 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 I, I even wonder why she called and told me. Yeah. Now, you, you write... There's something I didn't need to know. At that time, Paul and I was, had, rid off, had sort of figuratively wrote, written off into the sunset. O.J. says to appease Paula and focus exclusively on their new relationship, he cut off all contact with Nicole. Thomas was living in New York half the year. And I happened to be in L.A., and uh, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and was her. And I had successfully avoided her for a month and a half, two months, right? And she says, hi, and I, hey, how you doing, and why, why are you avoiding me? I said, look, it's not that I'm avoiding you. I just don't want to hear the, the stuff. And she said she needed to speak to me. And uh, I finally said, okay, speak. No, I need to talk to you to speak to you. And I said, you know, look, let me call you back. I got to take this other call, which was no call. I went back to sleep. 
Shortly after that, my kids ran into the house and ran in and gave me a hug and gave me a letter as well as tapes of our wedding and ran out to their, their playground that I had built for them in the front. And when I went out to, to, you know, to be with the kids, she was there. So I figured I can't keep avoiding her. <laughs> so I went over and said, okay, what do you want to do? Let's take a walk. So, you know, two, three steps. She said, I want to come home. You know, I miss you. I love you. And I was like, how could you love me? <laughs> you, know, you haven't seen me. We've barely seen each other the last eight, nine months. And what do you mean you love me? She said, well, I never told you I didn't love you. I said, yeah, but you said you weren't in love with me. I'm sure a lot of guys have heard this, right? Um, and it made no sense, but I kind of let her know that I wasn't interested in getting back together. But I did think we should spend time together with the kids, you know, uh, which I would do when Paul was out of town, right? O.J. claimed it was for the kids that he and Nicole began to spend more time together. But sometimes just the two of them went out alone. He recalls one evening that would change everything. She was alone and she looked lonely. And I said, let's go have a bite to eat. I was telling her about Marcus Allen's fiance, Catherine, who was uh, getting married. I was hosting their wedding at my house, and Nicole was crying. And then to, and it got to the point, I said, well, it can't be that sad, right? And she said that Marcus was not my friend. And I didn't quite understand what she was saying. Then it kind of dawned on me. I said, did something happen with you and Marcus? And she says, yes. And I said, check. Can I have a check, please? <laughs> When I asked her, why did you tell me this? She said, well, he keeps calling. He won't leave me alone. And I said, well, threaten to tell Catherine. Threaten to tell Catherine. How did you feel about Marcus Allen? This is your friend. Well, Marcus came over when he came back in town and, and apologized. My lawyers were very upset with me that I hadn't told them that because they said these guys are trying to paint you as a jealous, uh, uh, crazed guy. And um, and did this really happen? I said, yeah, it happened. You know, everybody knew it happened. And Nicole's best friends knew it happened. To this day, Marcus Allen denies that he ever slept with Nicole. But O.J. insists that he did. How did that make that, you that feel? That night ended, well, hey, I wasn't married to her. I thought it was wrong because she had always been really, honestly, she had always been the moral compass of our group of friends. I was a little baffled. And uh, that night, actually, after I dropped her off, something really kind of happened that night that started my downfall as I think about it. But I, I, I prefer not to talk about it here. What happened? Right now. I, I really don't want to talk about it here. I really don't. Okay. Yeah. What happened, O.J. claims, is that he and Nicole slept together, which he wrote in the book was like an addict having a relapse. The couple, now divorced, agreed to continue living apart, but try to reconcile. For the next few months, sometimes he spent the night at her place, sometimes she at his. But the calm didn't last. Emergency Can you get again. someone over here now to 325 Gretna Green? He's back. Okay, what does he look like? He's O.J. Simpson. Wait a minute, we're sending the police. What is he doing? Is he threatening you? <laughs> Going nuts. O.J. had heard a rumor that sent him into a jealous rage. Then Nicole had been hosting parties where there were drugs and group sex. If she was being influenced by drugs or anything, maybe she might have been making the wrong decision. I just know I didn't want any of these people around my kids. Hey, has he threatened you in any way or, or is he just harassing you? <sighs> You're gonna hear him in a minute, he's about to go to me. Wait a minute, wait, just stay on the line so we can know what's going on until the police get there, okay? 
Okay, Nicole. Uh-huh. Doing that 911 tape that everybody hears me yelling, I'm saying I don't want these girls around my kids. And that's the only thing that argument on that 911 tape was about. I went to her house and I read her about riot act. What did she say? I did what any father and and would do, <laughs> and yet, you know, people listen to that tape and made me this horrible person. Whenever they hear that nine one tape, can you believe he's yelling at her about this? Well, when the cops came, it became apparent. She said I was yelling to her about this and only this. That's the only reason I was there, reading her the riot act, is I don't want these people around my kids. Let's talk about the nine one one tape. How did you think about that tape for? evidence in the trial you know we knew what the motive was we knew it was jealousy we knew it was control and and we knew that he had the capability of, of killing her if you're going to come in yelling being threatening being physical kicking in doors and damaging you know the wall or the walls in the house while the children are there um, but framing it as, I'm only here to protect the children. Right. Exactly. And doing so much more harm to the children. She could have been killed that day. He doesn't say to you, Judith, what really happened, which is he kicks in the door. He, he breaks down the door to get inside the house. And all the yelling that we hear on that 911 tape is because he's pushed himself into a house that is not his and gotten access. And again, he's there stalking and terrorizing her, uh, you know, in, in the most egregious way. And yet he, th he describes it as looking out for his children. Was O.J. Simpson a good father? I don't know how you call yourself a good dad if you commit acts of violence or threaten violence in the presence of your children. So uh, on a scale of one to 10, I'm gonna put him at a negative one. For the next seven months, the couple resumed their relationship, walking the red carpet at a movie premiere, showing up at an NFL game, and going on family vacation with Bruce and Kris Jenner. But Nicole was exhausted. She told her close friends that she was finally done with O.J., but he wasn't done with her. Up next, O.J. describes what might have happened the night Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were brutally murdered. And Nicole was nuts that week. I mean, just craziness. It's a story he hasn't told before. I don't think any two people could be murdered the way they were without everybody being covered in blood. I think he's confessed to murder. And one you will never forget. It was absolutely horrible. The only thing that can fix our lives is our dream. What's your emergency? Welcome back to O.J. Simpson, The Lost Confession. Let's listen as O.J. Simpson describes what he did on the night his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman, were savagely murdered. Nicole, now 35 years old, made a decision that the unhealthy cycle between her and O.J. had to stop. 
On May 22nd, three weeks before her murder, Nicole returned an expensive birthday gift that O.J. had given her, telling friends, I broke up with him. I finally feel free. I told him I can't be bought. On June 10th, she went property hunting in Malibu, hoping to put some distance between herself and the man who wouldn't let her go. Two days later, she would be dead. You are about to hear O.J. Simpson talk about what he did on the day his ex-wife was murdered. Let's talk about the day of June 12th, 1994. Yeah. Tell me about getting ready for your daughter's recital. Just tell me, take me through the day. It was a long week. I had been to three or four cities that week. I was totally exhausted. My friends in New York tried to get me to stay in New York uh, uh, that Friday, play golf Saturday, and then go straight to Chicago where I had to be Monday morning. But my daughter was having a recital, and I had already missed, I think the, the week or two before, I, had, I was out of town, and I had missed... And missed something, I forget what it was, uh, something that my daughter was having. So I couldn't miss this. So I said, I got to be there for the recital. And I flew into town, and I just wanted to go there, see my daughter, and leave. And I talked to Nicole briefly that day. She had called and asked if I could get, if I could get there early and hold seats. And I said, I don't think so. Which she did. And when we got to the recital, uh, she had actually held me a seat with her and the two kids. Right? There was something... Uh, that you write in the book about what Nicole was wearing. That... Yeah, you know, we it was like it was like it almost like she was trying to be a teenager again. You know, dating all these much younger guys, uh, wearing the shortest, tightest things she was wearing, and sometimes you think something's inappropriate, but you don't say anything. What am I? What am I to say? Tell her what to do. You know. So you get the recital. Yeah, I was just exhausted, but everything was cool. And during one of the breaks. Uh, uh, Dr. Fisherman pulled me aside, and uh, Core Fisherman is, is Nicole's best friend. His um, daughter is my daughter's best friend to this day. Um, and Dr. Fisherman said, man, Jews, you won't believe what's going on. Uh, these girls, he is telling me that they had fights, and Nicole was nuts that week, right? <laughs> I mean, it was like, what are these girls doing? I mean, it's just craziness, what they were saying. I said, man, get away from them. I tell you, these girls, whatever's going on is bad, <laughs> you know? And this comes right after a week previous to this. Uh, her best friend, Cora, had come to my house in tears, begging me to do something to get Nicole away from the people she was hanging around. Somehow the prosecution didn't want that in the case, right? Um, and um, I don't know. I was upset. It upset me. The Brown family, Nicole's parents and sisters, were also at the recital. And there were plans for a family dinner afterwards at Mezzaluna, that local Italian restaurant. They recall O.J. asking to come along, but Nicole said no. What kind of frame of mind are you in when you I'm leave recital? I am tired. Uh, uh, irritable? I, I don't want to sleep. I'm irritable. When you get tired, you get irritable. <laughs> and you write about chipping golf balls into the neighbor's yard. You write, usually when I pick up golf balls, the world disappears, but this time I couldn't get her out of my head. Yeah. I'm thinking about uh, my kids and what Dr. Fishman mentioned to me. What comes next is O.J.'s hypothetical account of what he says happened on the night of the murders. So, Judith, how did you shape this conversation around the hypothetical? Why hypothetical? He felt that if he could claim that it was hypothetical at this point, he would have deniability with the children. That was what he said. But from my point of view, who would possibly do this 
even as a hypothetical, unless they had committed the murders. O.J. Simpson never took the stand at his criminal trial and has never given an interview about his actions on the night of the murders. That is, until now. Listen closely for the next six uninterrupted minutes. O.J. puts himself hypothetically at the scene of the crime. Um, the chapter, chapter six, is called The Night in Question. Uh, and you write in the book, now picture this and keep in mind that this is Purely hypothetical. 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 Yes. Why don't you tell me what might have happened on the night of June 12, 1994? <laughs> and let's just walk yeah, through the night. I, well, first of all, it's, this is very difficult for me to do this. Uh, it was very difficult for me because it's hypothetical. I know and I accept the fact that people are going to feel whatever way they're going to feel. <laughs> you know, uh, they're going to, uh, um, you know, some, uh, whatever, uh, whatever they want to feel. In the book, the hypothetical is... Uh, Charlie. Uh, uh, Charlie. <laughs> uh, this guy, Charlie, shows up, the guy who I had recently become friends with, and uh, I don't know why you had been by Nicole's house, but it told me you wouldn't believe what's going on over there. And, uh, and I remember thinking, well, whatever's going on over there has got to stop, right? So we kind of hooked up together, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of broad stroking this. We go over Get into Bronco and go over it. Let's just go back and do the details. Where did you I'm park? I'm the detail. You park in, in the, the hypothetical in the alley. Right. You park in the alley. Yeah. And you put on a wool cap and gloves. Uh, in the hypothetical, I put on a cap and gloves. Right. Yeah. And um, you reached under the seat for um, a knife. I always kept a knife in the car for the crazies and stuff because you can't travel with a gun. And I remember Charlie saying, you ain't bringing that. And I didn't, right? But I believe he took it. Charlie took the knife? Yeah. In the book. Yeah. Yes. So the back gate, you go through the back gate? Yes. And it was open or broken or? I don't recall. Okay. I go to the front and I'm looking to see what's going on. Um... And I can see that it appears, like Nicole had, fly, I had candles all the time. She really did to keep her overhead down, I think. And music was on, and uh, while I was there, a guy shows up. You know? So Ron Goldman comes in the back gate. Yeah, a, a guy that I really didn't recognize. I, I may have seen him around, but I really didn't recognize him to be anyone. And, uh, and I, in the mood I was in, I started having words with him. She says to you, I just came by to return a pair of glasses. Judy left them at the restaurant. Yeah, words to that effect, yes. And, and uh, he was I don't know if I believe it or didn't believe it. Uh, it was pretty much immaterial because, you know, uh, I was more concerned about everything that, that, everything that was going on, you know, and uh, was uh, fed up with it, I guess. And uh, You get into a fight. Nicole comes out. A verbal, a verbal A verbal fight. fight. Got a little loud, and by that time, uh, uh, Nicole had come out, and we started having words about who is this guy, why is he here, what's going on. And, and she says, this is my house, get that the F out yeah, of here. Yes, and uh, which I didn't like because, once again, this is the same person, and if you read the book, you'll see some things that happened in the two weeks leading up to this that were uh, very, very irritating, you know, uh, 
And I think Charlie had followed this guy in, one make sure it was no problem, and he brought the knife. As things got heated, uh, I just remember Nicole fell and hurt herself. And uh, this guy kind of got into a karate thing. And I said, well, you think you can kick my ass? And I remember I grabbed a knife. I do remember that portion, taking a knife from Charlie. And to be honest, after that, I don't remember. Except I'm standing there and there's all kind of stuff around. And um, um, What kind of stuff? Blood and stuff around. You know, we, you know, I hate to say this, but this is like that. Right, right. I know we got to back up again. Right. It's <laughs> okay. I want to back this up. This is hard. This is this hard. Is hard. To, yeah. I know. I want to back it's up hard to, to try to make people think that I'm. A... <laughs> I know. I know. Um, you wrote in the book, "I had never seen so much blood in my life." Mm. Yes. Covered. You're covered. The scene. Can you describe yeah, it? I, I, it's hard for me to describe it. I'm telling you, I don't think any two people could be. Um, Murdered the way they were without everybody being covered in blood. And, of course, I think we've all seen the grisly pictures after. So, yeah, I think everything was covered, would have been covered in blood. And what goes through your mind at a time like that? I don't know. It's like, uh, what happened? Right. Mm -hmm. You write about removing a glove before taking the knife from Charlie. Uh, you know, I had no conscious uh, memory of doing that, but obviously I must have because they found a glove there. And blacking out. Have no. you ever blacked out before? Not to my knowledge. No. No. Of course, uh, of course, if something like this would take place in anybody's life, if it were to happen, I would imagine it's something that you would probably automatically uh, have trouble wrapping your, your mind around it. It was horrible. It was absolutely hard. First thoughts. Eve, it's hard for you to even breathe. I've been watching you as you watch this. I have nothing to say about this. Absolutely nothing. Chris? Well... I think he's confessed to murder. I think he's confessed to murder. And uh, if I'd known he said this in 2006, I would not have objected to the release of this video. I don't think that there's any question of his involvement and, um, and that he is the person who is wielding the knife. I mean, he may try and describe it as a hypothetical, but of course, it becomes I. I did this. I felt this. I saw this. Um, this notion of Charlie. I think Charlie is OJ. This is no hypothetical. Mm -hmm. This is reality. Judith, who the heck is Charlie? I don't know who Charlie is. I wanted him to talk. For me to start interrogating him and pushing him, I felt he would get more agitated and he kept threatening to leave and not to finish the interview. And I really wanted him to stay. 
Let's listen again to this disturbing portion of the interview. I remember I grabbed a knife. I do remember that portion, taking a knife from Charlie. And to be honest, after that, I don't remember. Except I'm standing there and there's all kind of stuff around. And um, um, What kind of stuff? Blood and stuff around. You know, we, you know. I think, and Eve, I'm sorry, but I, I do want to go through what the coroner says happened because I think it's important to understand the specific details. It was not as he describes exactly. Nicole didn't fall. She was hit on the head with the handle of the knife, according to the coroner. She was stabbed four times in the neck as she lay on the ground. Ron Goldman arrived, runs towards her. He's grabbed by the killer who jabs him in the face five times with the knife and then slits his throat. He gets loose, but there's a perimeter fence, so he's, he's blocked. And so the killer is able to, to catch him again and plunges a knife into his side, and he severs his abdominal artery. There are defensive wounds on his hand, so he was trying to protect himself. And the killer alternated between the victims, pulling Nicole's head by the hair and cutting very deeply into her throat, and then going back over to Ron Goldman, who, according to the coroner, was probably dead at that point, and stabbing him. Your office described it as overkill at the time. Those details, I think, matter because they go to the viciousness of what happened that night. 37 years in criminal law, I've never seen a crime scene as horrific as this one. Do you think this is a confession, Judith? Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind how he chose to do it is the way he chose to do it, but he did it. And that's his confession. Here you are. You have it. He's telling you. I took off a glove. I must have left my glove there. Let's listen again to the interview. You write about removing a glove before taking the knife from Charlie. Uh, you know, I had no conscious memory of doing that, but obviously I must have because they found a glove there. 25 years of nonsense. And now here he is to explain to all of the naysayers and all of the doubters. That's my glove. I left it. Nobody planted it. Nobody planted it. You sound furious about the last 25 years. Well, she should be furious. Denise Goldman says she'll be furious. You know, I, I'm watching TV one day and I see Kanye West wearing a T-shirt and it says, free, free OJ. Well, you freed him. And look what you freed. Coming up, what happened with the bloody clothes? In the book, you describe taking off your shoes, your pants, and your shirt and dropping it in a bundle. Do you remember that? Uh, there are three sources of blood there. 
LeBrons, Nicoles, and LJs. For the first time, he tells us all the shocking details. Where are the bloody clothes? So somebody had to get rid of the bloody clothes. Next. Welcome back to this never-before-seen interview in which O.J. Simpson has already revealed staggering first-hand details about the crime scene, which he says are hypothetical. You wrote in the book, I had never seen so much blood in my life. It's hard for me to describe it, I'm telling you. I don't think any two people could be um, murdered the way they were without everybody being covered in blood. Then you see bloody footprints and you decide to take off. Yes. Actually, I, I believe Charlie kept saying, we got to get out of here. And in the book, you describe taking off your shoes, your pants and your shirt and dropping it in a bundle. Do you remember that? Uh, yes. And do you remember what happened? Because what are you going to do with it? <laughs> you know, somebody's got to get rid of, uh, as you may have called during the trial, is that where are the bloody clothes? So somebody had to get rid of the bloody clothes. Right. And you had left your keys and wallet in your pants pocket and you had to go back and get it? You know, to be honest, uh, I think I, I know that to be true. Yes. Yes. Um, and Charlie is hysterical, screaming, Jesus Christ, RJ, Jesus Christ. And you tell him to yeah, shut up. Yeah, he's in a panic. He was in a panic, and I'm telling him to shut up. Let's get out of here. So you get back in the car. You take in your clothes, put them yeah, in the bundle. and drove back, and, and it parked a block away because I knew the limo would be there and came across the backyard through the two tennis courts and, you know, came through the house. So you went through the neighbors? Neighbors, yeah. He had a tennis court, then I had a tennis court. And you go into the house, and what happens in the house? I, I I ran upstairs to take a shower. I actually ran upstairs and took some of my bags and came back downstairs and put them out front. OJ was due to catch a late flight to Chicago, where he was scheduled to play in a Hertz golf tournament the next day. And then I get dressed and I come back down. And then you get in the car and go to the airport. That's correct. Um, you sign autographs? Yeah. And you wrote in the book that you were asleep before the plane took off. Virtually, yeah. Early the next morning, O.J. was awakened in his Chicago hotel room by a call from the LAPD. When did you cut your finger? Um, to my knowledge, really, when I got the call the next morning, and this is the truth, um, when I got the call the next morning saying um, that Nicole had been murdered. I mean, was killed, was dead. I kept saying, what do you mean dead, uh, killed, or whatever the words they use? I said, what do you mean? And as well, we can't tell you anything. Uh, we're still investigating, but where are you? And when can you get back here? And, and I think I actually went in the bathroom and it was dawning on me. I was, I didn't really throw a glass. I just was, you know, you, 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 and when I was putting it down, I just, it just smashed, <laughs> you know? Police believed that the cuts on O.J.'s hand probably came from the fingernails of one of his victims. I uh, went downstairs. I, I was bleeding at that point. I went downstairs and asked the lady on the desk for a Band-Aid. Uh, uh, and uh, I knew that I signed so many autographs. And even when I had arrived the night before, um, uh, there was people, and I signed autographs, and I knew I wasn't bleeding in any way at that point, but I knew when I was leaving, I was. 
Now, and I ran to the airport and I ended up forcing my way on a plane. It was sold out and somehow I told them that my wife had died and I got to get out of here. And they got me on. You write in the book about speaking with Nicole's mother and her sister, Denise. Yeah. Do you remember what that conversation was? I think Denise yelled at me something once. Yeah. You wrote yeah. in the book that Denise yelled at you, yeah. you brutal son of a bitch, you yeah, killed her, like I that. know you killed her. Yeah. And what did you say to her? I hung up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Denise and I never really had much of a... But then again, she didn't have much of a thing with with Nicole. <laughs> yeah, you know, there was a lot of jealousy there. Let's um, start the beginning. And Chris, since you know this timeline of the crime so well, what do you make of O.J. Simpson's version of, of what happened next? What people need to remember about that crime scene is that there are three uh, sources of blood there. DNA. Three sources of DNA on those bodies, and in that in that Bronco, and it's Ron's, and it's Nicole's, and it's OJ's. So when he says that he didn't begin to bleed until he got to Chicago, that's a complete that's a complete lie. And then when he talks about the cut finger, he says, "Now this is the truth." Right. I'm curious what that signaled to you. When somebody's speaking the truth, they're just conveying information. Somebody who's lying has to then convince you that this lie is true, so you'll get overselling. I wanted to ask you, Eve, at the end of that segment, he says Nicole and Denise didn't have much of a relationship and then takes a dig and says jealousy. She's always been protective of Nicole. They were Mutt and Jeff growing up. There's no such thing as jealousy between the two. That's just laughable. So then what's the point of saying that, right? He goes out of his way to take a dig at Denise. Well, because, you know, Denise was one of the, the folks pointing the finger of guilt at him. So, you know, it's just a little payback. That's just the kind of guy he is. So the police now are obviously eager to interview O.J. Simpson, and he heads back to Los Angeles. We're going to hear what he says happened next. Take a look. So you get back to L.A. I get back to L.A. and and uh, what, what, now we're out of hypotheticals here. Right, right. <laughs> I get back to L.A. and uh, my lawyer and my assistant pick me up at the airport and we're driving. And my lawyer wants me to go to his office. We need to get to the office. We need to discuss what's going on. And I said, no, I spoke to the law. I spoke to the uh, police officer and I told him I told he told me they needed to see me. And for me to get home as quick as I can. And I said, no. I said, take me to the house. And they said, come on, OJ. We need to sit down and discuss. I said, I don't care. Get me to the house. So when we got to the house, there was media everywhere. We pulled up to the Rockingham gate. I jumped out, went to the gate. And there was a uniformed officer there and told me he had to handcuff me. I said, handcuff me for what? They said, well, I'm sorry. I got my orders. Now, the cops wanted to interview you, and Howard Weitzman says, Mr. Simpson is in no condition to talk right now, yeah. and you say no. I said, uh-uh. Hey, they need my help to find who did this. Uh, I don't care. And I've read, I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. Everybody knows I go through two, three books a week. You know, um, um, uh, Now I'm reading all this fiasco stuff, but <laughs> political stuff, but normally I read mystery books. And I know, don't talk to the Lord, don't talk to him, you know. And if you talk to him, you got to make sure it's recorded. Uh, so I told him, no, I will talk to him. I'll do anything I could, I could do to help them solve this case. Yeah. And you said in there, I needed to know what they knew. Yeah, 
But exactly. I need to know, tell me something. Nobody told me anything. All right. So I don't. Nobody told me anything. I don't know what they know. They're giving me this runaround. In any event, I spoke to them. I told them what I knew. I told them everything about myself that they asked. Answered all their questions. Do you have any problems with them lately? Have you? Okay. Always have problems with them. You know, I, I, I um, that, that's our relationship. It's been a common relationship. Despite being briefly handcuffed, O.J. was not under arrest. And after being questioned by detectives at police headquarters, he was released into the custody of his attorneys. O.J., are you a suspect? David, I told you before he wasn't going to say anything. I know you got to ask the question, but give us a break here. What was the hardest thing for you at that time? That people, you write in the book that you couldn't believe that people thought you were a murderer. It was hard to believe that. It, it seemed so easy listening to TV that week that it was that easy for people to believe that I could, I could kill two people. I thought that my whole life meant something. I thought the type of guy that I had lived my life, being pretty upstanding guy. I mean, I like everybody had my faults, like most men in, in my position. Uh, Sometimes temptations of the flesh is there, you know. But for the most part, I've always thought I was a straight shooter. Straight shooter. Mm -hmm. In any event, uh, that that was hard for me to. The, to accept that it was so easy for people to um, uh, believe that. With his house at Rockingham under virtual siege from the media, O.J. sought refuge at the home of his good friend Robert Kardashian, where he was reunited with his children. I want to talk about what you said to your kids the first time you saw them after the murders. Well, um... You know, I had asked Judy Brown not to tell the kids. I felt that was my place to tell my kids. Uh, I had to sneak out of my house uh, the next day because it was like, it was like Troy. It was like the siege of Troy there. And uh, a lawyer was able to get me out of the house. And Al Collins had gotten my kids. And we had met up on Mulholland Street, uh, Drive, and we we're going to go to Bob Kardashian's home. And my, I, I just recall my kids getting out of the car and running across this Mulholland Drive and jumping in my arms. And, and I was trying to just find the right time to tell them, right? And um, right before it was time to go to bed, I read them a story and I I started to tell them about mom. And I wanted to tell them that the mother had gone to heaven. And But they sit and they said, uh, no, I know dad, mom's in heaven. And... I think I don't. I, I think I was in shock up to that point, but I think that moment is when I broke down. I mean, literally broke down, because the way she said it, it was not like it was sort of sad, but not. She had no idea that she had lost her mother. She had no idea how this was going to affect her life. She had no idea that you know it was almost like sweet mom's in heaven, you know, and uh, I knew that this would have a profound effect on her life. And I think that was the first time that I, um, uh, that the pain was almost unbearable. I want to talk about the wake. Uh, mm -hmm. And you write, I was so out of it that I actually remember thinking, awake for whom, who died? Yeah, I mean, I was, they had put these drugs in me. And I, I mean, uh, they tell me I would sleep all the way there. I don't even remember, like the funeral. I always tell everybody, I don't remember the funeral. I see pictures of Sydney and I kissing. Seeing Nicole and leaning over and kissing her. Yeah, can, you kissing tell, her. can you tell me that story? Yeah. Well, no, it was tough. I just remember seeing her there. And I still had so many feelings of... If you're angry with a person upon their death, 
when they die, it's not like that anger disappears, right? And 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 because of the 911 call when I'm yelling at her about what's going on, it was like I want. It was almost like I want to say, I told you, didn't I tell you? Didn't I say to you? You know, it's whatever the hell was going on. You know what I mean? Didn't I? So you still got those kind of feelings in you and you still are trying to deal with I'm not going to be able to say this to this person I'm never going to be able to change this person's mind I'm never going to have an effect on this person again what did you say to her when you leaned over and kissed her I don't know if I said anything to be honest with you I'm told that I uh, that some person said they hurt me say I'm sorry I just recall Judy Brown pulling me over looking me in the eye and saying to me OJ did you have anything to do with this? And I know I told her no. Okay, so a lot to dig in on that. One of the most chilling things is he's so angry, talking about an incident that happened seven months earlier. That 911 call is, is seven months before the funeral. And he's reciting it as, I told you, didn't I? Right. And he's saying... I, I'll no longer be able to affect this person or, or to change this person's mind. That's what he's saying as he's standing over his dead ex-wife's body. He's not thinking about the brutal way she was killed, the suffering. All he's talking about is his, is his anger and his inability to further control her. And when he says, you know, didn't I tell you, didn't I tell you, didn't I tell you I'd kill your ass? If you didn't do what I told you to do. It really sounded like he was saying that, right? Yeah. Again, he blames her and he's angry at her that he's still angry. And he, th and he, he, what he's essentially saying is that, you know, after you kill someone, you think the anger would go away, but it didn't. I was still angry. He's still angry at her. Absolutely. Control. He had lost control. And so he did what he had always said he would do. He killed her. Now he has no control. It didn't resolve anything for him. No. Coming up. I can't believe what I'm seeing. A nation stands still to watch a celebrity on the run. I was being uh, depicted as a fugitive on the radio. Hey, man, listen to what they're saying about me. What was O.J. really thinking inside the Bronco? I was so depressed at that point, and I, and I was having, I would say, probably suicidal thoughts. Next. Welcome back to O.J. Simpson, The Lost Confession. While O.J. spent most of his last week as a free man holed up at the house of his good friend Robert Kardashian, his attorneys negotiated his surrender to police. It was agreed that O.J. would turn himself in at 11 a.m. on June 17th, five days after the brutal murders. But O.J. would never show up. There's a warrant issued for your arrest. When you find out about this, what do you do? Well, once again, I was so depressed at that point, and I, and I was having, I would say, probably suicidal thoughts. All I know is I wanted to see where she was buried, and I wanted the pain to stop. O.J.'s childhood friend, Al Cowlings, known as A.C., arrived at the Kardashians expecting to drive O.J. to police headquarters. It was at that time that we discovered for the first time that O.J. was not present. 
Al Cowlings was not present. And then I told AC, they were waiting to take me uh, to the jail. I said, AC, take me to, to her gravesite. Then when we got in the I, car, I, want to go through that I actually said, take me to her house. But when we got there, there were cops everywhere. So I said, take me to her gravesite. Why did you want to go to her house? I don't know. That's when she was last alive. That's, you know, it was, you know, I hadn't seen it. But I do know I wanted to see where she was buried. I knew I was going to have to, you just, I just knew this was going to be a long ordeal. Uh, I was in so much pain, I just wanted it to stop. I didn't think I could bear it. And I kept saying, I can't be locked in a cell right now. My kids need me right now. And da, da, da. and I was just, I just wanted the pain to stop. So I said, take me to her gravesite with, with, with a lot of thoughts as I, as we were going down there and talking to AC as we went down there. What and, did you uh, say? Just, just talked about the life and, you know, you remember that time, you know, and stuff like that, you know. Three hours after the deadline for surrender had passed, the LAPD held a press conference announcing that O.J. Simpson, having failed to turn himself in, was now officially a fugitive. The Los Angeles Police Department right now is actively searching for Mr. Simpson. O.J.'s attorneys held their own press conference to read from a startling note that O.J. had handed his friend Robert Kardashian before getting into the car with A.C. To whom it may concern. First, everyone understand I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. I loved her, always have, and always will. If we had a problem, it's because I love her. I loved her so much. In the note that you left with Bob Kardashian, yes. you write, if we had a problem, it's because I loved her so much. Can you tell me what that means? I loved her to no end, you know, uh, and always loved her. You know, I, I think what happened, it became reverse of what she said to me when she wanted a divorce. I loved her, but I didn't like her. <laughs> I wasn't in love with her. That's what she had said to me uh, to get a divorce. And I, I kind of figured that's where we were at at the time of her death. I loved her, but I wasn't in love with her. You know, and to some degree, I didn't really like her. Don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real O.J. and not this lost person. Thanks for making my life special. I hope I helped yours. Peace and love, O.J. I want to talk about other things that you wrote in that note, yes. if okay. we can. Uh, please think of the real O.J. and not this lost person. Well, if I'm going to commit suicide, you are certainly not a person who is together. <laughs> you know, uh, at that state in my life, if I'm going to commit suicide, uh, I am obviously... You know, not the person that I, I wanted people to know me to be, that I that I felt that I was. So, you know, I thought I'd always been a pretty good guy. I think I don't think any athlete had ever had the goodwill of the public that I had. I mean, certainly no better than the goodwill that I had had. And in three short days, from Monday to Friday or four short days, uh, just listening to the TV screens, uh, uh, to see all that goodwill evaporated. You know, did you feel uh, lost? in many ways? Yeah, you know, it's almost like you—you you were 
Ron and Nicole were, were physically dead, and it's almost like they killed me. Who I was, was, was attacked and murdered also in that short period of time. And, and, and once again, I, I, to this day, it bugs me that it seems that people wanted me to be guilty. And that really, really bothered me. By late afternoon, the search for OJ had made television history. Local stations deployed choppers to hunt for the white Bronco. And when they found it, the nation was transfixed. This is a special report from ABC News. Hi, Peter Jennings at ABC News headquarters. Let's immediately go to a picture in Los Angeles. We're interrupting 2020. The major TV networks went into special report mode, breaking into regularly scheduled programming, even interrupting the NBA Finals. We will set it to NBC News. Here's Tom Brokaw. Thank you, Marvin. We are looking uh, once again at pictures of Al Cowling's cars. It makes its way along a freeway in Los Angeles in the south central part of that area. And we are told by the California Highway Patrol that O.J. Simpson is in that car holding a gun to his head. 100 million Americans, virtually half the country, were glued to their televisions. The vehicle is registered to Al Cowling, a former teammate, close friend of O.J. Simpson's, who is a fugitive from justice now. For more than two hours, Al Cowling's navigated 75 miles of L.A. freeways with his old friend hunkered down in the back. Driver of the Bronco indicates the subject is in the vehicle and he is armed and has a gun to his head. All units stay back. Go back to the Bronco, and okay. if you can just give me some of the details of what what you said to each other and some of the. Well, going there, it wasn't a lot of conversation, but basically, it was just. You had a gun. Uh, yeah, but it was in the bag in the back at that point with the pictures and stuff. The police like to say it was with a passport. I always had my passport there. They said I had ten thousand dollars. I think I had like three dollars and something that changed. As a matter of fact, when I was let out of jail, I, I after my trial and they were giving me all my things back, all the stuff that was in the Bronco that was mine back. I said, "Where's the ten thousand dollars? <laughs> Where's my ten thousand dollars that you guys claimed that I had? Right? Which was totally false." Uh, uh, in any event. Um, what are you thinking? You're really? in the car. I'm in the back of the, still in the back of the truck, and I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Because every time we go by intersections, it's like, where did these people get the time to make these signs? Go OJ and stuff. And what was strange is, 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 is I had been, I was being uh, depicted as a fugitive on the radio, but from the side of the roads, it was more people cheering. <laughs> OJ says what made him snap out of it and decide to bring the chase to a close was pride. I just remember listening to the radio, which I think was Dan Rather. It really saved my life. Right. Because when he said that OJ had a history, police were at their house all the time, eight or nine times. That that was the first time that week that I kind of woke up. <laughs> hey, man, listen to what they're saying about me. I say, see, this is BS what they're doing here. Get me to my house, right? Take me home. And we immediately, immediately called the police. The AC told them where we were, where we were going. As AC pulled the Bronco into OJ's driveway at Rockingham, a standoff ensued as a police negotiator urged OJ to put down the gun and exit the vehicle with his hands up. 
When we got to my house, I saw a sniper on the roof. And, and I, you know, you get defiant. You know, they've been telling you this. They've been saying this stuff about you. I got defiant. You know, so I wouldn't get out of the car. I was just mad until I saw my oldest son, Jason, run across the road. And somebody grabbed him. He said, that's my father. And then I say, I got to get out of this car. I don't want him to get injured. The uh, police now know where he is. We have found him. The door is opening. And let's see what happens now. O.J. Simpson is in custody. He's been transported here to Parker Center. He is being booked and processed. That'll include uh, Prince, Mugshot. He sounds very convincing when he talks about being suicidal and being desperate and being unhappy and wanting to end it. And then when he gets to the part where he says, they killed me. What did you make of that? He clearly was desperate. Physically and emotionally was going through that. I think he was intending to kill himself. But at the end, when he's, he's talking about him, he's basically the victim here. It's, it's people thinking bad thoughts about him, people not holding him up. That's what's devastating to him. He wasn't suicidal, I don't believe, because his, his ex-wife, the mother of his children, was murdered brutally. He wasn't suicidal because of that, but because his image was damaged. He says he woke up, really, when he realized he was getting bad press in the form of Dan Rather laying out the domestic violence. The domestic violence. That what gets him mad is that people would think he's a wife beater. I think he's a very complicated person. I think he's addicted to the limelight. Uh, and one of the things that I noted about his behavior at the time, halfway through the interview, he leaned over to me when we were taking a break and he said, when you came here today, you didn't think you'd like me, but I changed your mind didn't I? And at no point did he ever acknowledge or really understand the gravity of his actions. So the police take OJ downtown to be booked, put on suicide watch. Listen to how he describes that experience. What was jail like for you? In the beginning, it was tough because I'm a talker. I'm a guy that spends his life, his whole life socializing. And most people don't realize that I was in solitary confinement the full 17 months I was there. One of the sergeants would go out his way sometime to talk to me through the cell, but I had no one to talk to from morning to night. What was that uh, like? In the beginning, you know, obviously it was horrible. You are so at the mercy of your jailers. For instance, the first time I had to make an appearance in court, I looked so bad. Please. I had no tie on. But what the public don't know is they woke me up every 15 minutes. They rattled my cell, turned on the lights. They alleged I was on suicide watch, but all night long, they woke me up. They made sure I sat up in, in bed and looked at them. Now, you go through that all night long and see what you look like uh, that day in court. And I looked, I looked horrible <laughs> that day in court. Mr. Sanchez, do you understand the charges as I read them to you? Yes. And have you discussed those charges with your lawyer, sir? Yes. At this time, do you wish to enter a plea guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Apart from his arraignment, O.J. would not be seen again until his trial began six months later. You are looking at inmate number 4103970, O.J. Simpson. Up next, O.J.'s reaction to the trial of the century. There's, there's no way they can convict me of this. Why he's still mad at Nicole. I've cursed her. I've been to her 
gravesite and why? What the hell? And why he agreed to tell all. You've heard O.J. Simpson tell us, hypothetically, what he says happened the night Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ronald Goldman were murdered. Next, he tells us what he really thought of the trial of the century and why he is still angry with his late ex-wife. Are you ready to enter a plea at this time? Yes, sir. How do you plead to counts one and two? Absolutely 100% not guilty. Los Angeles County District Attorney has just filed murder charges against Arenthal James O.J. Simpson. For nearly a year, the so-called trial of the century was must-see TV. There is an amazing, ravenous appetite for information about O.J. Simpson. In 1995, just three years after the L.A. riots, the debate over O.J.'s guilt or innocence divided America across racial lines. These white people, excuse me, but that's the way I feel about this here situation, trying to set the brother up. The prosecution was confident they had a slam-dunk case. I've never had a case with so much evidence in my entire life. Traces of the victim's blood was found in Simpson's car and at his home. And it's the kind of evidence that causes defendants to be convicted. You guys thought you had a slam-dunk case? Marsha Clark said, I have never tried a case with so much evidence. She sounded incredibly confident. Contrary to what people might think, you know, we were seasoned veterans in the DA's office, and we understood that there's more to a trial than just the evidence. The first time I talked to Marsha Clark about this case, she said, I have all of this evidence. The only problem now is if I can get someone to believe it. This case is a circus, and they've made it a circus. The mostly African-American jury did not believe it. After Simpson's dream team of lawyers successfully took advantage of a series of police and prosecution missteps, including testimony about a key detective using a racial slur. He said, the only good is a dead If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. It created reasonable doubt that O.J. Simpson had committed the murders. All right, Mr. Simpson, would you please stand and face the jury? We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon the Orenthal Simpson, a human being, as charged in the So, 11 months of trial. Here's how O.J. describes to you, Judith, how he heard about the verdict. What did you think of the verdict when the jury came back into the room? I felt that if there's anything right with the universe, there's no way they can convict me of this, right? Um, and we're not talking hypothetical yet. That's how I felt. There was a lot of talk that, that somebody who knew the verdict came to my cell and told me the night before, which is totally BS. Every sheriff, everybody that I came in contact with, at, at the jail, which was run by the sheriff department, told me I was going home from the moment Mark Furman got off the stand. When Van Adder and Furman testified, all the guys at the jail said to me, whoever was watching me at the time said, you may have did it, you may not have did it, but, but you're going home. The minute the jury knows these cops are lying, and they're lying, <laughs> they do not convict if they think a police officer is lying. 
What was your reaction when you heard I that? I told all the lawyers, on I told all the lawyers, we met, and I said, I don't want any celebrating. Then I told my mother that the night before, and my sisters. I don't want no celebrating because two people are still dead. And I don't want anybody celebrating if the verdict is positive towards me. Most Americans continue to believe that O.J. Simpson got away with murder. But some still maintain that he is innocent, a victim of racist cops and the media. And even though he was acquitted in the criminal trial, O.J. didn't get off scot-free. In 1997, a jury found him liable for the double murders in a civil trial. He was ordered to pay the victim's families $33.5 million in damages. The money is not the issue. It never has been. It's been making certain that one man, the man that murdered my son and Nicole, is held responsible by a court of law, and it's happened. Do you feel that you've lived the life of a convicted man in, in many ways? Thank God the public has not forced me to live that way. The media has tried, but the public hasn't. Uh, uh, so what's, it, what's it been like? It's curious that I go places and the public will come up to me, hug me, ask me how the kids are going. You write in the book, I realize that with respect to your children and telling yeah. your children, I realized that neither of them really understood what had happened to Nicole, let alone the long-term effects uh -huh. that her death would have on their lives. Yeah. What long-term effect has it had? Um, well, you know, I, I, I may see it in, you know, I don't like talking about my kids. I got to yeah. make it clear that, yeah. uh, and my kids have told me, Dad, you said you weren't going to talk about this, don't talk about this. But I will go so far as to say this, Sydney especially, I had enough time with her mother to establish a, a, a work ethic. You know, she was accepted in every college that she applied to. They both went to the schools of their choice. They're both in college. For what these kids have gone through, even if they hadn't gone through it, I can't imagine having two better kids. Do you talk to them about their mother? And That's something that my kids ask me not to discuss. It's nobody's business. And uh, just to say that, you know, my I feel totally loved by my kids. They know that they're very loved. Sydney Simpson was only nine when her mother was murdered on the front steps of their home at Bundy Drive. Her brother, Justin, was six. They were asleep upstairs that night, and police woke them and took them out the back door so they didn't have to see the crime scene. We don't know what their relationship with their father is like today, but O.J. says he has never tried to erase Nicole's memory. Do you have a picture of Nicole at home on the wall? Yeah. No, it's in the living room. Yeah. It's Nicole, me, and the kids. It was the last real group picture we took together. So it's right there prominent in my living room. And, what and my kids keep pictures of her in their room. Do you believe in heaven and hell? Yes. Do you believe that you're going to see Nicole someday? Yes, I do. You do? And my mother, my dad, I surely, I surely do. do. And what, what will you say to her? Hey, you know, I, I haven't thought of that. I would hug her. She, you know, if, they're in, if, if there's a heaven, there's a hell, they know. I don't have to explain anything. <laughs> they know. <laughs> That's what heaven and hell is all about. Do you, you ever know? talk to her in your mind? Uh, no, I pray to her. I, I got on my knees and say, I, I, hey, look, I've cursed her. I've been to her gravesite and why what the hell <laughs> look, look at these kids look at Sydney with no mother you know I've, I've done that I've done that that is what most domestic abuse partners do they connect violence and love 
May I add something now that all makes sense? Because I remember during that time, the family got a call from the cemetery and said, um, he's here. And they said, excuse me? And they said, he's here and, and we're, we're scared because he's screaming at Nicole's grave. Oh, jeez. Just screaming at it. And uh, the family said, well, call the police. Did you know that? No, no. I've, I've, never, I've never heard that before. You know, he's really revealed himself. Within a year of that 2006 interview with Judith Regan, O.J. was in trouble again. This is the state of Nevada versus Orenthal James Simpson. Arrested in Las Vegas for armed robbery and what he maintains was an ill-conceived plan to recover sports memorabilia that he claimed belonged to him. He was sentenced to 33 years in prison, but was paroled after only nine and released last October. I've basically spent a conflict-free life. Mr. Simpson, I do vote to grant parole. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How do you think you will be remembered? You know, um, we talk in this book about hypotheticals. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, everybody is going to give their opinion. <laughs> They're going to hypothesize what this book means. You know, he was guilty or he was purging his guilt. Whatever you want to take from it, I cannot control it. We cannot control what you think. Uh, my friends and family know that. So whichever reason why I did it, you decide. You read it, you decide. Any thoughts? You know, he thinks he's so clever. He's so manipulative. Uh, he's all of these things. But at the end of the day, he doesn't really manipulate anybody because who he is is on full display. Does hearing from O.J. Simpson bring you any closure? Does that bring Denise any closure? I don't think you can bring closure unless you can bring Nicole back. All I really care about is that Nicole gets a decent understanding here. What would you like people to remember about Nicole Brown Simpson? Just the sweetest, the most decent, um, the moral compass of a lot of us, an incredible mom. She was a really good person. Thank you all for this conversation. I know it's been difficult. I know it's, it's been really grueling, actually. But I appreciate all your insight. Today, O.J. Simpson lives in Las Vegas and is a free man. They're the ones that abandoned me. But 12 years ago, as the intense interview wound down, O.J. Simpson showed some regret. Anything else? Nothing for us. Okay. No. All right, good. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> Guys, I tried my best here. I'm done. No, we've done what I need to do. Okay. Is it hard? Do you feel like spent? <laughs> no, it's just that this portion here just, you know, I love that girl. Yeah. It hurts, too. But it's, it's what it is. Oh. You've listened to him for nearly two hours, and many of you may think you've heard a confession. But there will also be viewers who have always believed in O.J. Simpson's innocence. And still do.
subscribe to the Detour Podcast Network on iTunes, and don't forget to rate and review while you're there. You can also download the Stitcher and Podbean app to your device for free and search Detour Podcast Network and subscribe. If you enjoy listening to the shows on the Detour Podcast Network, then spread the word to everyone you know. Your word of mouth is our best advertising method, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Where can I buy a director's chair? Amazon. Where can I buy Welcome Back, Connor, on DVD? Amazon. Where can I buy that Humping Animals adult coloring book with a dog fucking a chicken on the back? Amazon. Go to d2rpn.com and click the Amazon banner. Buy an oven mitt. Hey, it's Ryan. And it's Dave. If you guys like the skits on the Rock Vegas podcast, check out the Rock Vegas puppet show on YouTube. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Rock Vegas Puppet Show. And also on Twitter at Rock Vegas Puppet. Yeah, new episodes come every Sunday. Make sure you subscribe. So there I am in my car, listening to shitty music. And I ask myself the tough questions. Why am I listening to the same song over and over again when I could be listening to the D2R Podcast Network? And is it true that he who smelt it dealt? And why the fuck did the chicken cross the road? And what the hell is on Joey's head? Hey, I wonder if Yoko Ono saw yesterday, today. I wonder if tomorrow was yesterday. Rockford reference. The D2R Podcast Network. Live for today. Or yesterday.